Well, good morning, folks. Today we are continuing in our in a new series we started, in which we're going to be doing a close reading of the Gospel of Mark. And and I want to remind you of a few things that we talked about last week. First of all, why are we doing this? So it's, it's certainly true that the, uh, the 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 church throughout the world is reading through the Gospel of Mark this year, according to the Revised Common Lectionary. We're going to be doing it at a a slower pace and a much more more deliberative uh, way of of working carefully through each of the stories in the gospel. So it'll take us all year to get through it. And, and why are we doing this? Well, it, it's because uh, Mark, I believe, gives us a, a particularly robust uh, answer to questions that we ourselves are asking in our time as Americans who've gone through quite an incredible struggle in the last year with regard to how we responded to the pandemic, how we've been torn apart in our responses to the pandemic, how we've been torn apart to the events in our international and local political lives, and how we have had that experience of, of, of often feeling a bit like Elijah. Uh, how could others follow uh uh, other, uh, you know, these other ways. How, 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 why do I feel so alone? Why do I feel so isolated when I listen to the beliefs of my fellow Americans who are, who are, who are calling us to go down different paths? And, and that was the, as we talked about last week, the uh, very common experience of the people of Palestine. So, where uh, Mark then wrote this gospel, as we discussed last week, in the midst of great travail, both in Rome, the Roman Empire, and for the people of Palestine. And I want to remind you, last week we talked about the prologue of the Gospel of Mark. The prologue is the first, uh, you know, 13 to 15 verses, depending upon how you, you know, how you cut it. And uh, and we talked last week about the troubles that were experienced by the by the, the Christian Jews in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire, how uh, just throughout the empire, there had been a tremendous instability leading up to uh, the years 66 to 70, during which, got, you know, we believe Mark wrote his gospel. Uh, there, there was a foreign war where the Parthians attacked. If you'll recall, there were rebellions on the eastern flank and in the western flank of the Roman Empire. Uh, they had the great fire of Rome, which then led to blaming the, the Christian Jews on uh, the, blaming the fire on the Christian Jews and uh, a great persecution, pogroms, if you will, against the Christian Jews, particularly in Rome, but not only in Rome. Uh, and then we saw a coup against Nero um, by those who felt he had fiddled while Rome burned, uh, to, to use the famous phrase. And then, and then, and then we experienced, or the people experienced, um, a, in, you know, tremendous political instability. And, you know, one single year in which there there were four emperors uh, leading up to the one who provided stability, the general who had been leading the uh, assault on uh, Judah. Uh, in response to the Jewish war, uh, who left the battlefield and went and declared him, you know, became emperor and then was able to uh, establish a new dynasty. So there was tremendous political instability. And so that was part of the context. Just as we experienced instability recently, we can have a sense of, 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 of just the whiplash that, the, that, the, that all the citizenry, but particularly the Christian Jews would have felt. And, and then we talked about Palestine, how there had been uh, not just a decade, but many decades of unrest, particularly in the northern port part of of Palestine, the parts that uh, we call Galilee and Samaria, uh, who were very resistant to Rome. Uh, they were the ones who lived closest to uh, the the. Uh, 
the, the Roman highways or rather the highways that, that, uh, that, that were the, the major trade routes and, and the Roman convoys would pass right through their lands. And so they were, uh, for, you know, historically uh, very resistant to the, to the Roman occupation. Uh, but they in particular resisted as, as did the Jews in Judah, the, the demands by Nero, the renewed demands by Nero that they participate in the imperial cult in which they declared him God and, uh, and worshipped him in, in the efforts, if you recall, of, of imposing that in the temple. Um, they were uh, a hotbed of what became, by the, by the time, the decade we're talking about, zealotry, uh, a political movement, a militant form of, of, uh, of folks where, where they, they insisted upon uh, res- a response to Rome that was a taking up of arms. And they're the ones who, uh, re- who led, the, led the revolt uh, against Rome. And so there was this war with Rome. And then, and if we recall, we talked about how the Jewish people themselves split into uh, many factions, you know, four dominant factions, uh, almost like four warlords. And the, and the Christian Jews uh, there in Palestine found themselves uh, pariahs uh, being called to, be, to, to prove their patriotism by joining in the war. Um, and then we talked about how the prologue uh, was this extraordinary thing that, that, but, uh, of Mark's gospel, where he imitated the, the announcement of the visitation by an emperor, the language he used, used the same language, and he announced the visitation of, of the Messiah, the anointed one, uh, the good news. And so there was this new king that he announced who was, who was, who was about to do a visitation. He, he announced metaphorically. And so that was the beginning of his, of his gospel. And we talked about how the, the in the first scenes that uh, this, uh, we see John the Baptist arising dressed like Elijah in doing things symbolically that evoked the return of Elijah. And of course the return of Elijah meant that the day of the Lord had finally come the day in which all uh, things would be righted, in which God would turn the world upside down and, uh, and, and, and conquer evil and throw off the oppressors. And, and then we spoke about how the day of the Lord uh, uh, signified uh, uh, that there would be a judgment, a great judgment. And so John the baptizer was baptizing people in the Jordan River, uh, preparing them for the judgment which was to come uh, and, and which would be uh, carried out by the one who would follow him, the one whom he was, was not even fit to serve. Uh, and, I, and, and so this this notion of, of judgment preceding deliverance was very important. So then the next thing we saw was that Jesus uh, came before John, was anointed by him in the way that kings were always anointed. He was baptized uh, to prepare him for the judgment. He received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the pers- persistent gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we saw at the end of it, of, of the prologue, Jesus inaugurates his kingdom saying the words uh, that, uh, that, you know, that, that John had said, but announcing the kingdom is here. And one point that I made is that all of this happened off stage. This all happened in the wilderness. Uh, and so in John's prologue, it's sort of like in a movie. It moves very fast. What we see is one of those things where you see a prologue of a movie where there's some sort of uh, action that happened that uh, was completely 
uh, in a different location than the rest of the story that happens in uh, in the movie that we're about to see in the story we're about to to uh, overhear. And that's what happens here in the Gospel of Mark. Mark has introduced Jesus. Jesus comes on stage. The prologue is over. And the next thing we see is the camera has shifted and it pans over the Sea of Galilee. And there is Jesus going about his kingdom. So before we get into that wonderful story today, I wanted to just go over a few things to that we didn't talk about last week uh, to help us understand some things uh, that, that are, that are going to be important as we carry forward in the gospel of Mark. One of the things we need to be careful about being children of the Enlightenment is not to impose our own way of seeing the world. Uh, not all of us see uh, the world in 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 an individual completely individualistic terms, but in classic liberalism, uh, we have tended towards that. And in fact, I would claim that we here in the United States are polarized um, by groups of people, who, who, some of whom have stronger than uh, others a communitarian value, which 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 celebrates our individualism, but also holds on to a sense of 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 being one family and. And, and who understands our uh, freedom in terms of, of communitarian values. We are free to be a part of this family and our, we've been liberated in order to be better participants in that family, which is a very different thing than understanding freedom as some individualized, privatized space uh, that is absolutely sacrosanct and a gift that no one must violate, which is another form. And so I think we 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 have this understanding, this way of seeing the world that, that comes from the Enlightenment. And I wanted to just stress that was not at all the way the world was in Palestine. In fact, the the, the way that uh, scholars would describe it is they have a dyadic view, uh, uh, dyadism. And, and that's one in which you see yourself in relation to all others in a hierarchy of values. Uh, you see yourself always is interrelated to other people and, uh, in, in, and you're, you're relate to them as, oh, these are people like me, and these are people who are above me or below me. And so it's a very strong, powerful uh, worldview in which you understand your place. Now, I would argue that here in our times, we are plagued by people who, uh, who, who, also see the world with such a view, uh, who some of who have been oppressed for many years, who see that view, and many and, and many who have been at the top of a, of a hierarchy that they perceive to be real, uh, who who see others below them, and that'll be important to our story today. So the other part of this is uh, of, of, of our context that's important to understand is just how how close. Uh, the Palestine was in this time to the agricultural revolution that transformed hum- homo sapiens from hunter gatherers into farmers. And uh, what very quickly happened was uh, the, 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 as we, as we were, when we stopped wandering and, 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 and hunting uh, our food and started domesticating ourselves and domesticating animals and plants, we then started experiencing the threats from that and the loss of food. And so an elite uh, quickly 
arose throughout the world whenever this happened. And so in Palestine, that was true as well. And the elite uh, would extract any surplus gains from our production of food uh, in exchange for protection and uh, in, in protecting us against all evils, particularly in the form of other bands of homo sapiens. And, uh, and uh, in exchange for that, they would uh, demand tribute. And so we know that Rome and uh, the Jewish elites demanded tribute from the peasantry. And they also created bureaucracies that controlled our exchange of goods. They, uh, so, to, so to speak, imposed tariffs and such. And what that did to those uh, those who were the actual farmers who worked the land from morning to, to night was it was that it, uh, it, it reduced them to subsistence life because the surplus anything that was surplus and it mounted about forty percent of their uh, of of the, their production of, of grains and other foods uh, was was taken by the elites in in exchange and so uh, this subsistence life was a fact of life. Now one of the problems that they had in Palestine is that and this wasn't just in Palestine, but but throughout wherever there were these temples to the imperial cult, those temples um, became part of the redistribution system. They stockpiled that surplus, uh, whether it be in the form of cattle and sheep or grains, and then they redistributed it to the bureaucracy that ran the temple and and uh, in, in, into, into the artisan class who uh, who. Uh, you know, provided many of the intermediate goods between the peasants and the elites. And, uh, and, and more importantly, the temple controlled access to God. And this is in a huge part of the story that Mark is going to be seeing, because you're going to, we're going to be seeing Jesus is going to attack this part of the social order. When we see him attacking the, 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 uh, the Jews who run the temple and attacking the, the Pharisees who, who, in, who, who were a good group of people, the, the group that Jesus had most in common with, but he would critique their Emphasis on purity because they themselves, as he would, as we're going to see, were part of the problem. Uh, that, that because they would name many of the the peasants uh, as unworthy of worship, unworthy of inclusion in God's love, because they were unclean. And you will see again and again in the story that's about to unfold, Jesus attacking that. Another part of our story that's real important as a result of this is that this subsistence life led many folks to uh, to the uh, to, to fall into the life of a day laborer. A day laborer had a lifespan of about six to seven years once they became a day laborer. But, but they came those individuals who would sit out there uh, waiting for uh, someone to, you know, a, a supervisor to drive up in his truck and say, y'all pile in, I got some work for you. And uh, it was a very, very difficult life. And we're going to see a lot of stories where Jesus will be sympathetic with that group. It reduced many to tenant farming where the, the, the lordly class, the priestly class who ran the temple and the and the Hellenistic uh, Jews who who uh, collaborated with Rome, uh, you know, became the owners of the land that they were on because they had been become bankrupt, and so. Um, and what we saw then also is land being taken uh, from the peasants and then used by the elite uh, to build uh, 
uh, distribution centers. And so right by Jesus's home, there was a town that is never mentioned in the Bible that was, you know, just a few uh, you know, miles walk from his home at Nazareth, Sepphoris, which was built uh, right before he was born and was a major tax collection center uh, where, you know, housed with the, 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 the people who collaborated with Rome. And he's going to be criticizing them an awful lot today, as we'll see. And then one other thing that's part of our story today is tax form. Uh, it was illegal by the, by the time of Jesus to, uh, by the, the Romans made it illegal to, to farm out tax collection of their tribute, but they left uh, left in place the uh, tax forming of other forms of local taxes that King Herod, uh, Antipa, uh, Prince Herod Antipa or others would have, would have uh, assigned. And, and so, uh, you know, tolls, for example, between the provinces and those types of things, uh, those could be tax form. The way tax forming worked was you'd have one of your own people who would say, I'm tired of working the land. I'm going to go rise up and I'm going to go lease the rights to collect money from my own people. And, uh, and I will then uh, collect uh, taxes and then turn them over and I'll make a profit. I'll be able to take a cut out of all the money that I, so when I walk on your land or if I stop you, you know, I'm going to get a cut of every dollar I extract from you. And so these people were parasites and seen as such. Uh, and that's important to our story today. And another thing that I think is relevant to us is that uh, in this period, uh, there was a, you know, the peasantry was the mass of the people, you know, more than 90% of the people were the peasants. Jesus wasn't one of them. Jesus was a tecton, which was, we've talked about over the Christmas uh, period, the Advent period was a, a very sophisticated combination of what we would call a mason and a, and a carpenter today, a, a really highly literate, highly technical uh, skill set. Uh, so he would have been a, an artisan. And, uh, and, and, uh, and the elite uh, were not, you know, here in the United States, we talk about the 1%. Well, they were less than a half percent of the people, very small group of people. All of this led to a really interesting situation. Our story takes place entirely today in, in Galilee. And so I appreciated uh, this uh, observation that, the, that that Galilean peasant found himself seeing the temple elite in particular, and also those sanctioned by Rome to be their heads, like Herod Antipa, uh, as, as those, you know, they're the ones that they were supposed to follow. They're the, they're the leaders that they're supposed to be able to entrust and, and look to as an example, those who uh, they're supposed to be able to rely on in terms of protecting their faith. And those folks themselves turn out to be their oppressors. So that's the setting of our story of, of the gospel of Mark. We'll, we'll say more each, each week, but uh, that's, those things are particularly important today. For what happens, as we saw, after Jesus has been baptized and tempted in the wilderness, he emerges and immediately begins proclaiming the gospel. Uh, announcing uh, that God has arrived, announcing that God is visiting God's people, the good news of that, and saying the time is now. That, that time that you've been waiting for has arrived, so it's now time to repent, to turn around from whatever ways that you have been going that are not the ways that God taught us, and to trust in the good news that God is doing something new. So we saw that last week. It's also the beginning of our lesson this week. 
So I want to uh, point out as we look at our story, we've we've we, John Mark has really set up this incredible uh, vision. You know, uh, there is this the, there's this trouble in Palestine. There's this trouble throughout the Roman Empire, but a new king is born. A new king is going to come, and a new king is going to come and do that which is to happen on the day of the Lord, which is uh, which which is the world getting turned upside down. And so, what does Jesus do? Well, we ought to pay attention to what Mark doesn't say. You know, he didn't go. And, and and organize an army or a militia. As I say here, he didn't he didn't summon the oath keepers or the proud boys, and he didn't go and and provoke or, or call into being his own band of of militants who were going to attack the Roman convoys as they tra- as they went down the trade uh, the uh, the trade routes or 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 attack the temple and uh, and have an assault in which they were going to take over the management and appoint themselves as the as a new temple elite. No, it didn't do any of those things. It's rather stunning. Instead, Jesus went not to peasants and not to the elite, but to folks of his own class, his own artisan class. And what did he do? He didn't equip them with pitchforks and, uh, uh, you know, battering rams or, or clubs. Instead, he called them to be a part of a very unique fellowship. And that's the story that we're going to be seeing in the coming weeks. And so we see Jesus is walking along the Galilee. And he and first, we, we, see, we see two stories that are almost identical in, in their form. First, he sees uh, Simon. He'll be called Simon throughout our story until suddenly he becomes the rock upon which Jesus is going to build. And then he's renamed by Jesus as the one we uh, know him uh, to be, Peter. But throughout the the beginning of our our story, he'll be called Simon by Mark and his brother Andrew. And they were fishing and they were throwing fishing nets into the sea. I want you to pay attention to that. So they these were artisans. They were they were people who dealt with cash. They caught fish and they converted it to cash quickly. And so they were the targets of the tax farmers because they were a very ready source of currency. Um, And uh, they were they were of the kind they were not really evidently. One we we can infer that they weren't wealthy fishermen because they were they didn't have a boat. They were out there uh, throwing these weighted na- nets that I'm going to show you out into the sea. You could wade out with these nets, and, and they still do. Just wade out into the surf and catch the uh, the uh, tilapia and the sardines that are native to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and so Jesus says, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. Let's focus on that word. That's an important thing. And what did they do? They left and they followed him. And then we see that uh, he, he then later Jesus is, is continuing on uh, around Capernaum and uh, he, he encounters James and John. Now, these two were fishermen. They were the sons of Zebedee and they had a boat. And, uh, and they also, we'll, we'll see, had a, an employee. So they were probably wealthy fishermen. They have at least one boat. And uh, he called them. And again, they followed him uh, and leaving their dad with, their, with dad's employees just sort of sitting there. Uh, and, then, and, then, uh, and then I've jumped ahead in our gospel because Mark has something else in his story that comes up. And then he comes to this little passage here where Jesus went out. Uh, by the lake again, by the water, by the the the, the scene of, of, you know, the waters of the place where there is chaos that's been put into order. And Jesus is going to put this lake into order, uh, you know, later on in one of these stories. And he goes once again there and, uh, and he meets Levi. Levi is one of those tax farmers. 
And he's uh, in his toll booth, if you will, uh, collecting taxes. And Jesus says, follow me. And what did Jesus do? He up and followed him. So let's let's drill down a little bit and understand the story a little better. I want to make sure this is going to be the, the scene of so much of Mark's gospel. I want to give you a visual and understand some of the geographic context of Galilee. And here's a fishing boat, a contemporary fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee. And you can see those cliffs that are alongside it. Uh, the map here, you can see it's real close to Nazareth. Almost none of our story is going to occur in Nazareth. It's almost all going to occur. The first half of Mark's gospel is going to occur along this these, these towns that we're along the Sea of Galilee. Um, and so uh, this story is taking place in the northern part, which is Caper- Capernaum. Now, the Sea of Galilee uh, is at the uh, at the beginning of the Jordan River, and the Jordan River flows uh, past Jerusalem all the way down to the Dead Sea. Um, and this is what it looks like. I wanted to make sure you see these hills. You're familiar with the Golden Heights from our current events. The Golden Heights are important to our story today. They were sort of like Iowa in the sense of uh, their fertility uh, and, and the crops. They were a just massive, uh, the Golden, Golden, Golden Heights in that time and today are, you know, a place where there's tremendous wheat production. Uh, but the important point of the, the, the Golden Heights, and there's another set of hills, the name of which I forget, uh, are they flank the, the Sea of Galilee, the lake. And, uh, and, and, that, and that, that flanking uh, those hills then produce a channeling effect of the winds. And so the Sea of Galilee is extraordinarily windy, which will become an important part of the stories that Mark is going to tell downstream. So I wanted to, to point that out. It's a beautiful area. Uh, and, and, and the fishing trade was big. As I said, they t- fished for tilapia and sardines and, and a few other uh, kinds of native fish. Uh, you can see a typical Galilean fishing boat there in, in, in the nets. Uh, the, they, they would throw the nets out into the water. Those, these were weighted nets, and basically the you throw the net out, and it would spread out, and then the weights, as they would sink, would collapse the net, and then they would pull the, the net back in. So you could do this uh, without a boat. If you, you know, sort, of, sort of like getting a food truck before you get your restaurant. You could just get the net first, take care of the net, and just wait out there and do this. And when you were ready for your restaurant, if you will, uh, to follow my metaphor, well, then you could you'd have, you could afford a boat. And uh, the sons of Zebedee, uh, you know, the Zebedee family had multiple boats and multiple employees, as far as we understand, and they would just go out deeper and have more nets, uh, but the same kind of thing. So Jesus says, come follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of humans. And one of the things that I've heard folks talk about is, oh, that means that uh, we're going to go save people. Uh, But let's talk about what did that mean? What does it mean to be a fisher of human from a biblical sense? Pretty important question if we're to understand the point that Mark is making. And, uh, and what I want to understand, make sure you understand that throughout his gospel, Mark is going to be quoting the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the scriptures as they were for Jesus and and the the, the early uh, Christian Jews. Um, they uh, they would reference scripture, and so the the phrase "fisher of humans" comes from their scriptures. It had a particular meaning. It may not be the meaning that you would think. Uh, so the first one, uh, the first place that I would point to is from uh, the prophet Jeremiah. Um, you, you know, uh, Jeremiah is 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 uh, talking about a time when it, when the the uh, Jewish diaspora, you know, when God has dispersed the Jews through the conquering, uh, their conquering by the Assyrians and then later by the Babylonians. 
And he's, and he's talking about a time that will come someday when God would deliver uh, God's people back to their homeland, but only after having judged them. And so, you know, you guys talk now about uh, me being the one who, who, who brought you up out of Egypt. And that's what the story you tell when you do your seders. But someday you're going to change that story because what you're really going to remember is how I brought you up out of the land of the north and all the lands from which I had where I had uh, from which I had banished you uh, and and I and to which I had banished you and uh, and I'll bring you back to this land that I gave to your ancestors but that's not going to be fun because when 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 I do that um, uh, he, he he said um, I'm going to send hordes of fishermen to to capture all of those to, to catch all those folks who have been preying upon my people. I'm going to hunt them down. I've been watching all their their all their moves. I see the sin. I see how uh, they have corrupted my land with their idolatry, and how they filled the land that was their promised land with detestable practices. So there will be judgment. There will be and the counting, Jeremiah says, when I deliver you. And then uh, fishers of men also is a phrase that prophet Amos used. He said, hear this, you cows of Bashan who are on Mount Samaria, who cheat the weak, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring drinks so we can get drunk. Uh, the cows of Bashan, uh, Bashan uh, is, is the Golan Heights. Uh, that lucrative area, and who could he, who would have Amos been talking about in his time? Well, he would have been talking about the kings that had set themselves up to be fat, drunk, and happy, and who lorded over the peasantry in Amos's time. That's who he was talking about, and so he uh, and so Amos talks about fishermen who will. Um, who will bring back the days of holiness, the new day. This is the day of the Lord will come. And when the day of the Lord comes, Amos said, they will take you away with hooks, even the last one of you with fish hooks. And so a fisher of men uh, is going to be fishing for these people who have uh, oppressed the poor. You'll go out through each wall, each one of you, and you'll be flung into Harmon. So um, there, it looks like I... Um, Skipped is Ezekiel, uh, but uh, they the uh, well. I have a note here about it. So, so what is fishers of men? What is fishers of humans in Scripture? Well, the first thing to remember is that it's it's something in every case. It's associated with the day of the Lord. It's associated with this judgment that is to come. It's a judgment that is the first step in the deliverance of God's people, uh, and it's a it's a judgment that happens to God's people. Uh, those who are being delivered are being judged judged as part of is the first step in being delivered and in the in the in the prophet Jeremiah's case fishers of men are those who are going to deliver us from the idolatry and the detestable practices of the of, of those who have worshiped other gods uh, and in in the prophet Ezekiel uh, the Ezekiel uh, text uh, is is one in which um, he talks about Pharaoh, and he, and he's going to uh, Pharaoh in in his in, in the Ezekiel's example is a crocodile, and there's all sorts of fish that attach to this crocodile, and the Lord of the day of the Lord is gonna is going to hook the crocodile, pull it out of the Nile, and throw it onto the land, and along with it will be all the parasites who who have been subsisting on the work of the crocodile, and so he again uh, Ezekiel is talking about those who have a parasitic 
ascetic form of life, feasting upon those who have appointed themselves king, who are false kings. And then, of course, the prophet Amos we just talked about, uh, who, uh, you know, the, the fish, fishers of men are those who are going to deliver us from those who have crushed the peasantry, who have subsisted in this this life based upon a value of human hierarchy and who can't even be bothered to have a conversation about change, about transformation, about social justice uh, for those who are beneath their station. And so here's the, 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 the language from Ezekiel. I'm against you. Uh, the Nile is all mine. I made it for myself. And so I'm going to set hooks in your jaws and I'll make the fish from the Nile's canal, the Nile's canals cling to your scales. I'll, I'll drag you out and, throw you up on the side and also all those fish from the Niles can, canals. You'll fall on the open ground. So if you can imagine Ezekiel's talking about fish just flopping on the ground, drying out, withering in the sun. Um, so that's what a fisher of humans is in, in biblical uh, form. So when Jesus evokes it, he's, he's invoking some prophetic imagery, which would have been well known to his artisan class folks. So that's fishers of men. Now, he also later on in the gospel in chapter two, we see him walking along and he is again by the lake. And now he encounters Levi and Levi, as I said, is collecting taxes. And he says, follow me. And Levi got up and followed me. And the point I just want to make there is that not only did he go to his artisan class to to form his fellowship, he also went to those who who uh, who who were supposed to be horizontally related to him, but had chosen to be collaborators with the enemy, if you so, if you so to speak, with with the oppressors. And so, what did he do to Levi? Well, he called him to quit his job. He called him to say, "Stop being a part of the of the process of exploiting your people. Stop profiting from this. Stop being a parasite. Come and join me in a new way of living." And Matthew. And Levi did later on in other gospels, he's called Matthew, but in, in, in Mark's gospel, he's, he's, he's Levi. So I wanted to just point out, that's what it means. That's what this call means. And it's a call, if you will, to revolution, to, to a disruptive practice. that's going to take on uh, those who have, or who have perpetuated injustice. And how did they respond? Well, we see uh, in, in, with all the prophets, a, paradigm, a paradigmatic uh, response. Uh, and, and, and that's classically in that story of Elijah that Tom read so well to us, the story when Elijah uh, recruited Elisha or Elisha. Uh, and, and if you remember, uh, he, he just, he comes to him, he's plowing in the fields and Elisha had, uh, had a, a long group of, of, of oxen there. And Elijah comes up to him in the middle of his fields and just threw his coat on him. And Elisha immediately followed him, dropped what he was doing. He said, okay, let me, let me, let me go celebrate what's happening with my family and then I will follow you. And he did. And so that's what we see. Uh, also, this is, is what is, you know, we know what Jesus's call is. It's this call to become a part of what God is doing. And the paradigmatic response that we see from all three of these stories is the same. They left their nets and they followed him. They followed him. They left their father and his employees in the boat. Levi quit his job and followed him. Now, that's a pretty important point. And later on, 
Mark is going to have remind us of just how hard it is to to follow Jesus. Now, the, this is the first call, and that's what we call the call of the disciples. Uh, but I, but one of the things that Mark is going to show us is that he's going to have to call us again and again. You know. Peter, excuse me, uh, the sons of Zebedee didn't leave their jobs. They didn't leave their fishing boats. They didn't, and, and neither, neither did Simon or Andrew leave all of their possessions. That's a misnomer. Later on in the gospel, we're going to see, we're going to see uh, Jesus returning to the homes of of those folks. They followed him, but they didn't relinquish their their you know everything that was in their life and begin following him and leave it all behind. They're, they instead they they redeployed the resources that had been uh, focused on one way of life and then they and they re, re um uh, reallocated them to this effort of following jesus so they became a, a hosting place for example simon's home becomes a, a place where jesus uh was hosted and they they did many of their meetings and we'll see that that's uh that's that's how that came about but jesus is going to talk about how hard it is to have this paradigmatic paradigmatic response. Uh, later on in chapter 10 of his gospel, he, he'll remind us, he'll give us that famous phrase about how hard it is for a rich man to be, uh, you know, to, to, to enter into this, this world in which uh, God reigns in our lives because uh, uh, there is there's so much uh, to relinquish. And it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. In other words, Mark understands, Jesus understood how hard it is to make this complete commitment to this new way of being. And that's one of the things we're going to see. So what we see today is the first step of Jesus inaugurating his kingdom. And it's not by calling an army. It's not called by calling us to, to militancy at all. Rather, it's called it's, it's a call for us to uh, get rid of this dichotomous world in which we see a private life of our own that is distinct from our participation in our society, uh, from, the, from, the, from the discussion, from the discourse about how we're going to order our society, this dichotomy between our personal life and politics. Jesus is going to, to uh, come out and call us to, and he's going to insist that those must be one and he's going to call us to disrupt the social order that in which we are embedded um, by accepting our own moral responsibility, our social and economic responsibility for its disorder uh, within our own communities. And uh, another point uh, that I'd make, because Christians have been confused about this, and many in our own time are confused by this, Jesus is not calling us to leave the world in which we live. He's not calling us out of the world. He's not telling us to be sectarian, to form some community that stays away so it's not, so that, so like the Essenes, uh, it, uh, it doesn't become corrupted by all those other people. No, it's an understanding that all of us are tainted by, uh, by this by this. Dis- order of the of God's world uh the, the, of the promised land and, and we're all called to be a part of its uh reordering into the kingdom of God but the way we do that is not through militancy it's not by uh taking up arms it's not by assaulting the temple but rather by embracing a new and transformative way of being the one that we've been calling the way of love so that's our story 
that's the end of chapter one in Mark's gospel. And what we see is Jesus has now gathered his band, his fellowship, and he's called them to be disruptive of the order in which they find themselves embedded today and to lead by their example uh, the world into a more right ordering. And that's what we're going to see in the coming weeks. And in the next few weeks, we'll see Jesus going and attacking each of those areas of oppression and then replacing it with new ways of being in each one of them. And so I would just say to us folks, this is, this is our calling too. And I'd remind us uh, that it's a calling that the disciples themselves uh, said yes to. And yet uh, we'll see that they were rather clumsy in responding that again and again, Jesus had to call them back to this process. So that's probably true about ourselves. So uh, I would urge us to be forgiving of ourselves and that today we simply agree to recommit ourselves to this call to be Jesus's disciples in the way we have seen today. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.